0: I'm Dr. Jill Weiner. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti racist space, along with some of my own insights and explorations on topics ranging from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice and beyond. In order to provide a nuanced educational and honest examination of systemic racism and dominant culture. Before I start, I would like to do a land acknowledgement that this podcast episode is being recorded on the stolen Creek and Muscogee lands. Hello and welcome. I am so excited uh, to be here uh, today. My guest today is Martha Caldwell. She is a co-founder and vice president of learning and development at iChange. She draws on the power of story to make the impact of social identity visible. Her approach synthesizes elements of social and emotional intelligence, inquiry learning, and identity formation research. She served on Emory University's consulting team for the Dalai Lama's social, emotional, and ethical learning curriculum, and designs and facilitates DEI programs for the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. Her articles on social identity and equity in education have appeared in Middle School Journal, Independent School Magazine, Greater Good Magazine, Youth Today, and Ed Week. She is a co-author of Let's Get Real, Exploring Race, Class, and Gender Identities in the Classroom, Facilitating Conversations about Race in the Classroom, and Gender and Sexual Identity in the Classroom, an Educator's Guide. Martha is also the facilitator of this incredible uh, white caucus group that I have been um, lucky enough to be a part of. And... Um, getting to experience firsthand her brilliance. So Martha, thank you so much for for being interviewed today for for joining me. Well, thank you, Jill. It's so good to be here. Um, so I love all the work you're doing. Um got connected to you through a friend. and um I'd love to get us I'd love to hear from you kind of how and and for anybody listening, Martha and I are both white- bodied people. Um, and so I always find it um, I think helpful for people listening who are also white-bodied and who are not to to hear from people who are doing this work who come from a place of not having to do this work, uh, at least being taught that we don't have to do this work. So, uh, Martha, I'd love to hear kind of your history and what brought you in, um, what brought you into the space. Okay, um, I'll go way back then. I was raised in
1: a very small southern town that was probably. Black, and I was, of course, a white person, and it was during the era of segregation. I give myself away by saying this, but I go back pre-civil rights movement. So as a a young adolescent, I was watching footage from the civil rights movement on television, and I was very conflicted because I had not had racism ever challenged in my life. It was sort of a given. Uh, White superiority really was what was the given. And so I went through that conflict and the schools were integrated and I started to see firsthand that some of the lies that I had been taught were just that, lies. And so it was a slow evolution of trying to find my way without a lot of support and in fact, conflict within my family over my changing belief system as I began to learn more and more. And... And ultimately, what happened was I joined a a group of other people who were committed to uh, anti-racism and really evolving awareness more than anti-racism. It wasn't just racism, it was also sexism and other kinds of isms that we were, were just like caucusing to talk about how we could evolve our consciousness, what action might look like in this realm. And I became quite committed. And as I did that, I began to form relationships with people of color. And that was really, I think, for me, the game changer. Because I think uh, one of the things we talked about in our last um, group of white racial equity advocates was you know, what we lose by being segregated from uh, what white people lose by being segregated from each other. And I got, you know, I, I began to form really close and wonderful relationships with people of different races. And it was, it changed my life and I realized what I'd been missing. So um, that then I think takes my commitment to a very personal level where it's also about my my evolution my growth but also my life and my relationships and my feeling alive so it's very personal to me and when i do this work i'm doing it not just for other
0: people i'm doing it for myself um i love that i think that there's not enough talk about i mean again not to center whiteness but like it's not just it's not just white people losing out if black people or who are other marginalized identities get more uh, you know, if if we if if I don't even know how I'm saying this, but like if equity, if there's more equity, um, or if we are working we racism, yeah, like it's sort of this like zero-sum game. We've all like heard that phrase probably before. Mm-hmm. And we don't really talk about A, what white people are missing out on and B, like what white people actually have to gain from doing this work. It's not just like a, oh, yeah. like, I feel bad for bad and it's the right thing to do. Like there's it's so much deeper than that.
1: It is the right thing to do. And I think it's it's, you know, we gotta acknowledge that it is an ethical movement. So, And I want to talk more about that a little bit later, but I wanted to go back to what you're saying about the zero-sum game, because uh, that, that I think, is also something that we have to change our attitude about how everyone benefits from equity. Um, You know, I like the economist Dana Peterson, who wrote a report a couple of years ago for Citibank, and she outlined what racism has cost our economy over the last 20 years and it's about 20 trillion dollars and you know and then heather mcgee writes the the some of us and talks about how white people have actually given up goods and services to stay segregated for instance the closing of the swimming pools mm-hmm. um back in the 70s And some of us, you know, who were—if you were around then—you experienced that. Um, Rather than share the the same water, we filled in the pools and turned them into a a parking lot. Um, So those kinds of things don't help anybody. And so the uh, Dana Peterson's idea is that if we can close some of these racial equity gaps, we're actually going to probably generate about five trillion dollars in five years for the economy. And that by by creating equitable outcomes and providing opportunities, we actually generate money. We don't, it's not a zero-sum game. If we work together and we, you know, we're more innovative, we're more productive, we're more engaged with each other, we're thriving. Uh, that, that actually generates in, invention and creativity but also prosperity. So it's not a zero-sum game. We're actually losing out when we think of it as a zero-sum game. If you win and that doesn't mean I lose, we both can win. It's, it's, it's quite the opposite. So yeah, generating uh, income, wealth, creativity, innovation, it's, it's all part of equity. And I think that's something that's really under-realized In our society, is that we actually all benefit when we make the pie bit bigger.
0: I like that making it bigger. I don't for whatever reason. I don't know if I've heard that specifically. Like I, I know it's like, not one you know one bit goes to another, but I like just the idea of it getting bigger.
1: Yeah, Um, that's Dana Peterson's language: is making the
0: pie bigger. That's great. That's great. Um. So yeah, I mean, you're right. Like it, it is. It is the right thing to do. I think, I think we can kind of all agree that it is an ethical thing. And also, practically, it increases, you know, it, it improves outcomes for everybody and is going to expand the economy, etc. And also on a personal level doing this work. Um, Rather than it being something that we have to see as causing harm to white people who are going to feel shame and all that, like, yeah, feel the shame, feel the guilt, feel all of that. And then move through that mm-hmm. with support, with support, you mm-hmm. know, and, and then realizing that like on the other side of that, or even through that, it's so, it it adds so much to the, the life of a white person. I feel like to, to get outside of that bubble. It's definitely
1: enriching. It is definitely enriching. I can say that from personal experience. I think the other unrealized benefit of it is that it makes us as a collective more intelligent. And Lord knows we need to be more intelligent as a collective. We are really at probably an evolutionary turning point right now as a species. And my hope and prayer is that we can come together enough to solve these huge problems, one of which is racism, Uh, but all of the the issues around climate, you know, I really feel that by joining together around race, we can create a template to solve the other problems. But, you know, there's all this research about how how inclusivity creates uh, an environment in which innovation thrives. And that's kind of a given if you're in the business community. You may not understand how that happens. How does inclusion, diversity and inclusion make us smarter? And it's really a no brainer. I mean, I've asked groups of 13 year olds this question, why do you think this is? And they're like, oh, it's because you have different perspectives offering insight. And so, of course, it's going to you're going to build on each other's perspective and it's going to make everybody better decision makers. So it's a no brainer but putting it into practice is another thing, but I do believe that that very notion that we're smarter together and better together is, is something that will drive evolution. And when I think about the work that I do, you know, it's in the context of, I love people. I love humanity. I want to see humanity thrive.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, and I think this is some, this is this, this the work we do around race is absolutely key to our future as a species. If we can solve these problems, then we have a template to solve other problems that are that are equally pressing. But I know as a teacher, i found when I worked on these issues with my students that they weren't really ready to talk about climate. They wanted to talk about their relationships with their friends. Mm. And race was an issue and gender was an issue and sexuality was an issue for them in their relationships with each other and that's what they wanted to talk about until when they resolved those relationship issues then they were ready to talk about bigger issues of climate so i'm, I'm it makes me wonder if we have to solve the problems of race and gender before we can really be qualified to solve climate
0: it's also interconnected which is something that i like keep learning absolutely mm-hmm. it's all- well, I was having a conversation with someone. Um, gosh, it was about oh anti. We're talking about anti-fatness and anti-blackness. Mm, and yes, that. that started with anti-blackness. You know, like it's all rooted. It's all rooted in anti-blackness and racism. And so mm. I feel like you're right. If we do start with that, or if we do figure out a way to navigate through that, then all the other that's kind of right. like the baseline.
1: Yeah. Even within the the general field of, of, of racism, anti-Blackness is is really, if I think if that were our focus and we could really make some mileage against anti-Blackness, that's kind of a double negative against anti-Blackness, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that would serve all races.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, how did you, I want to go back for a moment to, I mean, you, you didn't talk specifics about your childhood, but you, you know, like you, you were, you said, like, I was like programmed the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was never challenged. White superiority was superiority was never challenged. And then you were talking about how you had to kind of navigate your family dynamics as you started to expand your consciousness and realize that it was all a lie. How, do you have any advice on how, cause I feel like that's something that comes up a lot for white people. And I would imagine you see that a lot in the work that you do with white people. Like, Do you have advice for people who are wanting to ne- wanting to go against what they've been maybe taught by their family um, and, and having a hard time with that?
1: Yes, I do. I think one of the things for anybody, whether no matter what your identity is, if you're doing this kind of work, you really have to have a support network. So if you're white and you're doing anti-racist work, and this comes up in our in our groups, our uh, white anti-racist groups, our white racial ad- advocate groups, we, we change the name all the time. We're trying to find just the right words because we can't say the white group. Um, yeah. This is the wrong message. And we wanna be clear that this is a group for people who are are, are wanna be part of this movement uh, toward racial equity. So right now it's called the White Racial Equity Advocates Group. And and that group is for white people to find support from other white people who are also experiencing maybe some issues within their families. Um, Maybe they're being called, you know, jokingly called woke or too woke. Um, You know, they face ridicule. They face, you know, I've had whole sessions where people talk about just the pre-Thanksgiving session about the fear of seeing relatives that make racially insensitive comments at the Thanksgiving dinner and how they can handle those. And they talk to each other. And this, the group, one of the one of the reasons is so white people have a place where they can talk about, about issues they face that are similar, but it's also a place for white people to talk to each other. So they're not burdening their friends and colleagues of color we don't need to be talking to our Black co-workers about Uncle John and what he says at the Thanksgiving table. That's where we come together to support each other. So it's actually putting in the labor with other white people so you're not depending too much on the labor, the emotional labor of people of color. And it is emotional labor. It's emotional labor for everybody who's doing it. And so we're trying to share the labor here and help develop our skills for navigating these conversations with other white people. I, I also like the work of David Camp, who's a, a black man who trains white people.
0: I know him. And he was you a, you do? yeah. He's a co-facilitator facilitator with me in a um, health equity program for the uh, ACGME, which is the like governing body for. Uh, medical education like residency and fellowship. So I know him well. He's wonderful. But please continue. Yes, he
1: is wonderful. And he and he he says, you know, it's really white people's responsibility to educate other white people. Mm-hmm. And by educating other white people, we're actually um empowering white people to be advocates for equity and justice and fairness. And that's an ethical that's an ethical it's an ethical drive that we all have. We all have this drive to be an integrity. So, you know, by educating Uncle Frank at the Thanksgiving table, we're serving Uncle Frank. And I think we need to know from each other that we're coming from that place. And rather than becoming defensive, we have to ask questions. And if we can't talk to Uncle Frank, who can? Mm. You know, if you can't talk in your own family about this, who's going to talk to Uncle Frank? It's got to be us, other white people educating white people so I take that from David Camp and he also has as you well know um, a method for white people to have conversations with other white people Mm -hmm. which we also talk about in our groups
0: um what do you what do you do like I have a family member who votes liberal thinks he's anti-racist I don't think he'd use the term anti-racist, but he thinks he's not racist. Mm -hmm. He's like, I did this work in the 60s. I've got it all figured out. Any conversation about it is shut down, yet continues microaggressions, continues to do and say things that are obviously not. And he's sort of like anti-woke, even though he thinks he's, and I'm saying anti-woke, like the way it's used negatively. How Mm -hmm. do you, like when there's just like this, like stonewall of like, I already know everything there is to know, not interested how do you suggest people continue to, to work with that person and, or care for themselves when that happens? Cause it's hard to, I guess the, I guess the first priority I would say
1: would be to care for yourself, you know, protect yourself. Um, But, you know, can we really afford to do that? And I know, you know, camp's first premise is reflect. And it's like, I think you you have to stop and feel your own defensiveness and you have to feel your own feelings around what just happened. You know, what do you, how do you respond when you hear that? And what comes up in you when you hear that? And then ask, you know, it's all about what questions can you ask to bring that into uh, awareness for him? You know, it has to be a question. It can't be an argument. It can't be a debate. So dialogue is about asking questions and being curious. Mm -hmm. And debate is about confrontation and arguing. And it's not about confrontation and arguing. it's really about, it's about dialogue. And so what questions could you ask that would just make him stop and think? And you may ask that question and it fall on deaf ears and you've done something to try. The other is to say, you know, to, to join with him and say, you know, I, and this is like something that we really have to develop. And I, I really try to do this in my groups with, with white advocates is really develop our own stories about, cause one of the things camp says to do is say, I can understand how you might feel that way. In some cases we can say, I used to feel that way. And then I learned and go on to tell your story yeah. But I think there's so much shame around being racist that we hide our stories under our shame. So the yeah. fact that some of the times I'm the, when I'm most triggered, it's usually by other white people. Oh, it's almost always by other white people. And so by stopping and reflecting on how that makes me feel, why it makes me feel that way, what I see is a lot of times we hate to see our former selves in other people. So when we, somebody says something that we used to feel, and of course, I told you my history, so I can go back. I have felt, every, I have, I, it's easy for me to say I used to feel that way. I have felt everything on the spectrum. And so for me to go back and tell a story about when I feel that way and what changed my mind is way more effective than arguing. So we have to develop our stories when I've caught myself in a biased situation. That reminds me of a time when I was going to the store and I ran into a group of young black men and I tensed up. And then I realized, oh, my gosh, these are ages of the students I teach. I paused. I switched my thinking. I said hello to them, ask them how they were doing. We stopped. We had a conversation that was very rich, enriching and rewarding. And it turned out I knew one of the kid's brothers. I had taught his brother. So those are the kinds of things that move people, not lecturing or accusing but just saying yeah i know how you might feel that way i i had a similar experience and this is what happened so enlightening through stories is i think a it's something we have to learn how to do
0: i love that i love that um (laughs) excuse me so what what do you think Where where is your work going now? Like, what are you doing currently and where are you looking to kind of grow into and where do you feel like the next? Well, okay,
1: that's, I, I'm very excited because just last week something happened. I've been complaining um, bitterly on the inside to the people that I work with that we go into these organizations, businesses and they're inviting us to come in and maybe it's a black resource group is inviting us to come in and train the black resource group. And so I get off the phone and it's, and I know with another colleague of mine, I was saying it's so frustrating because of all the people in that organization, the black employee resource group probably needs our training the least. Okay. Not to say they couldn't benefit from it, but all of the rest of the organization is not being trained. And he said, well, you know, that's kind of not the way it works. It's like we start with a black resource group and then maybe they introduce it to other groups and then eventually, you know, we get to the entire organization. And I'm like, what I'd really like to see is go in and start with the c C-suite executives and train all the leaders in the organization first. And and not to say we wouldn't also train employee resource groups because they're the people who are most impacted by the problem. They do need the language because what they need to be they, the people they need to be talking to, though the people who have the power to make the decisions, are very often white people, very often white men in the C-suite or in the upper levels of management, and they're the last people to get the training. The way the model's working now, and this is one reason you know you were mentioning. Um, a group, um, an article that was in the New York Times about why train you know, why DEI training doesn't work. Well, that's one reason it doesn't work because we're not training the right people. I had the experience last week of actually creating a program for leaders in a very large organization. And they were just ready to he- something had happened, and they were ready to hear a different kind of approach. So I think that approach that right now the approach to the EI comes from the people most impacted by the problem who are often lower on the hierarchy. And instead of people at the top of the hierarchy, but I think it has to be both. I don't think it's like top down or bottom up, but it's a combination of both or it's both and. And so that's exciting to me. And I think that's the a new direction that I haven't had a lot of experience seeing it is really like, getting top leadership people with power now are saying i need to be inclusive because they realize you know it makes us better it makes us smarter it makes us more prosperous organizations thrive when they're inclusive but people have to be trained on the skills people have to be trained in how to man and you know like people may say oh you know microaggressions unconscious bias i've been trained in that i know what that is But have you been trained to manage the situations that come to you where you're at? Are you when you witness or identify a microaggression? Have you been trained on how to intervene in that situation so that the person who works for you is protected from that? Mm -hmm. You know, do you know how to manage that situation? So I think that's kind of the direction I'm seeing now is how leaders and managers can be trained to intervene. And sometimes it's like, what are the words? that you need to say when you see or witness or someone tells you something happened to them that was racialized or, or gender oriented. You know, how do you know, what do you know how to do? Or what if you're it? You know, so often people who see it, they might see an act of discrimination. We what they call They're now calling microaggressions, um, unconscious exclusionary acts. So maybe you see an unconscious exclusionary act but do you know how to respond to that? Do you know how to get up and say, okay, time out, let's talk about what just happened? Or do you just let that go right? and don't speak up? And that's what most white people do. So I think the 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 people, the, the biggest group of people who can actually make a difference need to be trained in like how to intervene, how to stay in dialogue and not go into uh, debate and not go into conflict or controversy, but to really negotiate these situations and intervene in ways that are really productive and keep everyone engaged.
0: Yeah. That's so important. I think a lot of it too, is just like believing people when they come forward and not like explaining it away for something else too. I think even, even that notion. Yes. Is so foreign to a lot of people. Yes.
1: Yes. And that reminds me of a study i read about and um it was by a company called textio and it was about how people get feedback you know who gets feedback from their from their the people they work for and who doesn't and there was a a big discrepancy the like black women got nine times more non-actionable feedback meaning it was about their personality or their social skills, and not about their actual work performance and how they could improve their work performance. And it was Black and Latino women. Yeah. And so one of the the CEO of the company's response was, "This just goes to show that when Black women tell you they're being discriminated against, we need to believe them. We need to pay attention." And we need to take action to rectify this. This is a big deal. You know, it's a big deal because it impacts wealth and it impacts career advancement. It impacts mm-hmm. uh, income, capacity to, to create equity. This is like really shows why we have to focus on creating equity. So leaders have to be trained in catching themselves in their unconscious bias and trained in how to give equitable feedback to make sure everybody who needs to be getting feedback is getting high quality feedback and not just, Oh, you know, you got a great personality or you're very passionate,
0: be less angry. <laughs> be <laughs> less. Yeah. Oh yeah. As a white person doing this work, how do you keep yourself accountable? I know you and I talked about that, have talked about this before, but what, what does that, what does that look like for you? What does that mean to you um, in this work?
1: That's a really good question uh, because I feel that it's so important. And I think for me, you know, I work with different teams of people and I'm often one of the only white people on the team. And so I have to establish the rapport. Sometimes people have to give me feedback. And if I, because, you know, unconscious bias is unconscious. And so I could commit an act of microaggression without realizing it and if someone doesn't feel safe enough with me to point it out to me and lets it go which so often people do let it go so i like to uh i like to be to get that feedback you know I, I, well let's not say i like it mm-hmm. When I get feedback that I've done something that may not be fair, we'll say. For instance, I have a colleague who said to me, a Black woman who said, you seem to be feel really free to give me feedback more than you do the other people on the team who were men, they were Black men. And and I, my immediate response was, to be a little defensive and again i have to pause and i have to say what is going on here is she possibly right and i had to really examine how i interacted with the entire team and i think she was right well i mean of course she's right you know i mean we just said <laughs> you have to believe people when they tell you this so i had to acknowledge that she was right and i had to say thank you for you know caring enough about me to tell me that not just writing me off as another you know racist white woman who you've had a bad experience with so we worked through that together Uh, another black woman i work with feels feels very free to tell me you know and it's not so much that i've it's not just that i i'm on it's not that i'm committing acts of of I'm not committing microaggressions, but I'm not seeing other people's perspectives necessarily. We have very rich conversations, like we'll facilitate a group together. And then we come out and we break it down. And I'll say, well, this is what I saw. And she says, this is what I saw. And she very often sees, you know, she's like, well, I think the perspective of the women of color might be, and it'll be like, wow, I didn't even see that. I didn't even realize that's what their perspective might even be. Of course, it is now that you pointed out to me. So I think we have to be in relationships for one thing, to be accountable. We have to be in relationships with people who will hold us accountable because I can't and and Danielle, uh, my closest co-facilitator, she's like, you know, you can't know what you don't know she understands unconscious bias and how, because we're close enough, we worked together for 11 years, you know, she knows where my limitations are in terms of my consciousness. And she's not, doesn't hesitate to fill me in.
0: Yeah. And I think one point that I want to kind of point out here, because you, you know, it, and it hasn't been explicitly said, but like being in relationships, we, as the white people have to earn the trust first. This doesn't mean like you've been working with this woman, you said for 20 years. So you're in a, a trusted relationship where you can get that feedback from her or ask her to, this does not mean for any white person listening, like go ask your black colleague who you're barely friends with.
1: Exactly.
0: Thank you for saying that. Yes. Thank you for saying that. Cause I have worked
1: with her for 11 years. I also started working with a, a, a biracial woman who told me, in no uncertain terms that she actually advised against hiring me because mm-hmm. she said, I've just been burned by too many white women.
0: Yeah.
1: And I realized then, I, and I said, thanks for sharing that. And I didn't feel defensive then at all because I've heard so many black women say that, yeah. that I didn't take it personally. I know it's not about me, she didn't even know me, but I did take it as a challenge. And you know, I then committed and I said, look, I'll support you in any way i can you know just just know that i want to support you in any way i can and if 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 you if anything comes up i hope you will will tell me about it so we can work through it together and so uh yes that's absolutely true and then the other thing is i don't want to give the impression that we're supposed to depend on relationships with people of color to you know, for our own education. It's not their job to educate us. And yet it takes a lot of trust to have the kind of relationship that I just described. But we also have to read. We have to educate ourselves. We have to have conversations with other white people. You know, it's 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 a constant striving for more awareness around it. And, and I, you know, I know in the meeting, uh, in our last meeting with the white advocates group, uh, a lot of people were talking about you know what it's like to be a white person who's not really very aware of racism and a lot of white people are not at all aware of racism their lives are completely segregated they take it for granted and then when they start and I'm talking about maybe their backgrounds and then they come into a workplace and they start to to start to understand the impact that racism has on people of color and it's 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 a painful awakening and it's layered like the skins of an onion. And the more you learn, the more you need to learn. And it's uh, it's just such a journey of learning. And it's not one thing. But I think the thing for me that really drives it is how can we have better relationships across these differences? That's really, I think, the secret sauce is the relationships. But you can't it can't just be that the relationships have to be supported by a community, by reading and learning and and self-education and professional education as well,
0: yeah, like like responsibility for our own feelings <laughs> and our own mistakes and all of that. Um, I think one of the things for me was I, I, I just sort of like took for granted that I was trustworthy in life. Like I could mm-hmm. just, mm-hmm. I'm a doctor. I'm a, you know, like I can just show up and be like, trust me. I, and it, I didn't see, I didn't recognize that as whiteness yes. necessarily until it was sort of like, I can't remember if it was pointed out to me or if I like something was pointed out to me and then I was like, Oh, right. Like, I haven't earned this trust. It actually isn't, doesn't, you know, and that's like the opposite of what like that, that upbringing is like, I'm allowed to think that like, I'm given that. Exactly. Given exactly. That. You expect, we expect to
1: be trusted just because we're here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and recognizing the way whiteness shows up is, uh, that's some deep, deep work. And it. it really
1: is. It's an ongoing journey for sure.
0: Do you want to talk a little bit about the um the stages of white identity? Is I know you've you're doing some work on that right now. And I think it's like on this on the verges of being published. So you may not want to you may or may not want to share all of it right now, or but maybe we can direct people to a link um later uh, when it's published. But what do you do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure what to do about that article. I know I sent it out to to um the group as a draft to get some feedback on. It's something I've been working on for several years and I don't know that I even want to publish it, but I want to, I want to understand it and I want to teach people because I think it's helped me as I've been on this journey and all of the different stages of development I've been in as I move along, you know because um, I was actually raised racist. so our whites I was raised in white supremacy, so I had to come out of that. And then, you know, when you come out of that, you're angry and you feel like you've been deceived or, or maybe I guess before that, you know, from white supremacy, usually go into colorblind. It's like, which is kind of the same as not racist. Um, Meaning I'm not racist, but I don't see color, you know, race is, race is immaterial to me. I just see humans. I'm not white. I'm human. That stage, which really has, um, is damaging to people of color because particularly like if you're a teacher or something and you're teaching kids who live and breathe the politics of race every day and you're not seeing that as part of their experience and so you're ignoring a huge part of their identity when you don't see their racial identity and it's like as if you saw their racial identity it would mean that you're racist. No, race and racism are two different things and when you see somebody's race you can affirm that and not mean that, you know, oh, the only reason to talk about race is because of racism. People are living a life that race impacts, and so are white people, but people of color um, are more conscious of their racial identity by far than most white people so then, there's white saviorism. You see that where you kind of move into I want to do something and I want to do it now. There's a rush to urgency, and you want to go in and and rescue people who are impacted by racism, and that's also a, still has some vestiges of white supremacy because, you know, it's it doesn't empower black people to be rescued, and they don't want to be rescued. They want to be empowered, and so we uh, we have to really check ourselves on how we help. And again, going back to ask, how can I help? Rather than, here's what I wanna do to help you. Here's what you should do. Because it still comes from the idea that white people know better than people of color how to solve these problems. That is absolutely not true. We need to develop the skills to ask people of color, how we can support them and empower them to lead the way. So, yeah, so those are some of the stages and, you know, it goes into um, the stage of, I want to do something, but I don't know what to do. We've already talked kind of about, talked a little bit about that to disidentification, which is, you know, which are always trying to prove I'm not like those other white people. And this is where I think we get the denigration of the term woke, which, we actually want to be woke. It was always a compliment. I know the first time someone called me woke, it was Oman Frame, who is the co-founder of I Change Collaborative. And he introduced me to a friend of his and he says, this is Martha, she's woke. And I was just so honored to be described as woke. And now it's become, you know, a denigration of someone to call them woke. But yes, woke just means you're aware of race and not not racism, but you're aware of race and you're aware of your own race. Mm -hmm. But sometimes people become aware of it and they wanna disidentify with whiteness because they can't really separate their personal identity from whiteness, the identity of whiteness. And so you just wanna prove that you're not like those other white people. And uh, from there you go into a more nuanced position of I can be white and I can be an advocate for people of other races i can be an advocate for racial equity but part of that is really understanding that you are white and you have white a uh, white you have a racial experience and that racial experience is white and that is what you bring everywhere you go and it limits your consciousness in some ways it makes you more powerful in some situations because you're white and you need to be on that you need to own that. In some situations, you are more powerful, and you need to be able to use that to transform situations. So, I'd say the last stage is, and it's probably aspirational, is a transformative racial consciousness. You know, where we're really using our identity in different situations to navigate transformation and change the bigger picture of society.
0: I love that. It's so powerful. I do hope you publish it. I'm <laughs> good. I'm glad to hear that. I'm not really sure what to do with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, how, how can people work with you, reach you, hire you, learn from you, all of those things, because I'm lucky enough to get to interact with you on a semi-regular basis. Um, and I'm sure everyone listening is going to want to do that as well, or lots of people listening are going to want to do that as well. Well, we have a website, uh, www.i.com
1: ichangecollaborative.com and you can go to the website and see some of the work that we do uh all of the work that we do is not on that website because we do consulting and so we're always creating programs we're also i'm also on linkedin uh martha caldwell on linkedin and also i'm on i I change collaborative is also on linkedin and those are probably two you can email me at martha at ichangecollaborative.com there are many ways to contact us. What are some of the programs you'll offer? Well, we offer consulting. We offer coaching. We offer leadership training. We offer firm-wide training. We have a foundational series that we offer. And then we have a deeper dive series into DEI topics. And, uh, and we facilitate employee resource groups. We do uh, facilitation training. We do a little bit of everything. And the affinity groups, though, that we're talking about, what we're called the, the white racial advocacy group, is free. And you can sign up for that. You know, contact me or look, it's on LinkedIn right now. Uh, those groups are free. And so we, we're, we invite everyone to come to those. And we have one for uh, BIPOC folks and we have one for lgbtq folks and then we have white racial equity advocates those are the three that are running right now mm-hmm. and we so we're really really those are great ways to get in find community with other people who are doing this kind of work like i go back to you gotta have your support network and so we're offering support networks for people who are committed to doing this kind of work
0: that's amazing um so i will put all of those links in the show notes Martha, thank you so much for sharing your experience, for, you know, sharing how, how story can, can really, um, illustrate and, and take, help white people take ownership of where they've been and use that to make change. I think that's so powerful, um, and just everything else we talked about. So thank you again. And, um, again, all of her links and everything are going to be in the show notes. Anything, any last words you want to share? No,
1: thank you so much, Jill. This has been really fun. Uh, Wonderful. All right. Yeah.
0: Enjoyed it. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of conscious anti-racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow conscious anti-racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, M.D. J.I.L.L.W.E.N.E.R.M.D., And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.